This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for September 7th, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. The midterm elections less than two months away. Will there be a blue wave? Will Democrats regain control of the U.S. Senate or will it remain in Republican hands? To break it all down this week, our guest is Kyle Kondik. He is with the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. Our focus, the issues that will be shaping the Senate races, a number of key red states where Donald Trump won in 2016, and why those states could be key to the November elections. Let's begin our conversation at the 30,000-foot level. As you look at the political climate in this country and the Senate races that voters will decide, what's it like? Um, This midterm is like many other midterms in that the president's party is at something of a disadvantage. Um, The the president's party often loses ground in both the House and, and to a lesser extent, the Senate— uh, in in midterm elections, uh, historically speaking, uh, but but a complicating factor with the Senate is that uh, Senate elections are cyclical. You know, with the House, all 435 seats are up every two years, so it's a pretty simple equation. But in the Senate, you know, only about a third of the seats are up. The 35 total out of the 100 this year. And in order to understand this Senate map, I think you have to understand what's happened on this Senate map. 6, 12, 18 years ago, and the Democrats have consistently been picking up seats on this Senate map over the last three times it was contested. So they picked up four seats in 2000, they picked up six more in 2006, and then, to the surprise of some, they picked up two more in 2012. And eventually, if you have a bunch of good elections on a Senate map, you're probably going to have a bad one at some point because you, you get essentially overextended, and that's where the Democrats are right now. They control 26 of the 35 seats on this Senate map. Uh, that, that includes two independents from Maine and Vermont who caucus with the Democrats, so we consider them Democrats for the purposes of this discussion. Uh, and uh, almost every vulnerable Senate Democrat in a dark red state is on the ballot this year. The only exception is Doug Jones of Alabama, uh, who just got elected in 2017 and doesn't have to run again until uh, 2020. And so the environment is good for Democrats in that the president's approval rating is low. The House generic ballot, the national poll that asks people whether they want to support a Democrat or Republican in their local House race, you can sort of apply that as sort of a general gauge of the environment, the political environment. Democrats are leading on that question in the high single digits, which is a good sign for them of the political environment. Democrats have been performing well in elections held so far this this uh, cycle, be it a handful of special congressional elections, including most notably that Doug Jones election in Alabama last December. Uh, and so the environment is good for Democrats, and yet... The Senate is challenging because the Democrats are defending so much ground already, and uh, they're defending ground in some of the states where Trump performed the best and is the most pop and is the most popular, uh, particularly places like West Virginia and North Dakota. It really is then a tale of two races because the House is very different, where the Democrats have the advantage. The Senate, of course, right now, the Republicans have the advantage. That's right. And, uh, you know, if you'd ask your typical swing district House Republican, hey, do you want the, the president to come campaign in your district? I'm sure most of them would say no. In fact, all of them might say no. And yet, if you'd ask, say, Patrick Morrissey, the Republican uh, attorney general of West Virginia, who's running against uh, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, hey, do you want the president to come to West Virginia to speak on your behalf? You'd probably want him there every day from now until the election. And uh, because uh, the president is extremely popular in that state. And so, yeah, it's, it's just a different world in the Senate because you've got these dark red states uh, that uh, voted pretty heavily for the president in, in, in at least five instances. 
Uh, and then, but on the House side, it's it's a lot of kind of mar- more marginal territory in different kinds of places, uh, you know, kind of high end suburbs uh, where the president is is definitely below uh, below fifty percent in terms of approval. We'll be talking about some of the individual races that really will determine whether or not the Republicans keep the majority or the Democrats are able to recapture it. But take us inside first the Senate Republican Campaign Committee. What's the strategy, generally speaking? Um, you know, usually in uh, Senate races, um, if particularly if you're kind of on the wrong side of a potential wave, uh, you try to localize the race. And so you try to disconnect yourself from the president. And that's what we saw, you know, red state Democrats doing uh, during the Obama years. And it really wasn't that successful for, for the, the lion's share of them. Uh, a lot of the red state Democrats got wiped out uh, in bad midterm years for Democrats in, in 2010 and 2014. But interestingly, the the dynamic um, in these red states, even with an unpopular Republican president in the White House, is that Republicans are the ones trying to nationalize in a lot of these Senate races because, again, they're places that the president is uh, or, uh, the president is quite is quite popular. And then you have Democrats like, again, Joe Manchin or uh, Joe Donnelly in Indiana sort of emphasizing their kind of local connections and, and kind of sounding like um, – you know, the kind of traditional moderate to conservative Democrats that, that used to be much more plentiful in American politics, particularly um, uh, Democrats from the South or from border states that were, you know, kind of trending Republican at the federal level, but they were able to hang on in the 80s and 90s. And they did so by emphasizing their uh, their, their their position is almost like a third party candidate, you know, someone who's not really a national Democrat, but is more of a local Democrat, but they're not actually, a, you know, Republican either. And so someone like Joe Donnelly, very well may vote for Brett Kavanaugh, for instance, for the Supreme Court. Uh, and he also is not, you know, he's not pro-choice on the the abortion question, which I think is helpful in a socially conservative state like Indiana is. Um, but again, it's it's a, it's such a it's such a weird election in that um, the the operatives on this again on the side of the you know I guess the side of the wave. If you think this is going to be a wave year, they would be the ones trying to tie everybody to the president. And that, that's I think what go, what's going on in the race for the House, which is much more clear cut. But the race for the Senate is just all scrambled because, again, uh, you've got all these uh, Democrats on the ballot running in states that are not favorable to them. In an interview on the Fox News channel with Brett Baer, the Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell was asked, what are the issues in this campaign? He pointed to a booming stock market, record low unemployment, strong economy, deregulation, two Supreme Court justices uh, nominated by uh, President Trump, and a record number of conservatives in the lower courts. Do these issues resonate with the voters? I think to conservative voters who like the president or are you know traditional Republicans, I think that probably is a uh, a winning message. I will say that often what you see in this midterm environment after a new administration takes over is that new administration comes in, they may have control of the House and the Senate as the, the president did with the Republicans. They begin to enact their platform, and all of a sudden, in we you can look at this in 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 polling that goes back to World War II. When you have, say, a conservative administration taking over, the public all of a sudden starts to sound more liberal. And and when you have a liberal president administration taking over, uh, the public starts to seem more more conservative. And that's certainly what we saw during the Obama years. And, you know, the, the tax cuts are sort of have very modest popularity or actually kind of unpopular. The Republicans ended up being in, a, in the bad position of essentially taking ownership over the health care system and the Affordable Care Act, but not actually repealing it. They came, of course, very close uh, last year, but still have not. 
not actually done that. And so healthcare often ranks as a high issue uh, in terms of you know asking people about it. And Democrats are more trusted on that issue right now. And again, that was the opposite when Obama was in office when uh, the Affordable Care Act was not that popular. But the Affordable Care Act now is kind of popular. Uh, and so, again, um, the issue matrix is such that Healthcare is important. The president himself is important, and not really in a in a good way in most places. Although maybe in you know states like West Virginia, North Dakota, where his uh, approval is positive. But I also think that there may be a sense that, and this is again another thing common in a midterm election, that the public wants some sort of check and balance on uh, on the White House, particularly because. I don't think a lot of voters necessarily got what they thought they were voting for in 2016 in that not only did the pundit class, myself included, think that Hillary Clinton was going to win or that she had a decent chance to win. Um, but I think also if you ask, you know, if you look at polling that asked the public who they thought was going to win, I think a lot of people thought, oh, well, Clinton will win. And they kind of thought they were voting for divided government. And then that's not what they got. So um, if there's ever a time for a, for a check and balance kind of argument, it might be now because um, the public may not have quite expected that they were going to be getting a pretty conservative Republican administration. Remember, too, that the president campaigned as a different kind of Republican. And he is in some ways, I think, particularly on trade. Um, you know, just setting aside some of his outrageous behavior, but but it just if you're looking at the issues, but you know the tax cuts, the judges, those were you know th- those sorts of policies and appointments were appointment were things that, that any Republican president might have done, and so maybe I, I think the president suffers a little bit when he um, sort of seems like more of a conventional Republican, which which I think he has been on certain uh, certain policy uh, agenda items, and you know the fact that Mitch McConnell, who is a you know, basically mainstream conservative Republican can essentially tick off a bunch of achievements that he likes. You know, that's not necessarily what Trump ran on in a lot of instances. And so there may be kind of a disconnect between, uh, again, what people may have thought may, may have thought they they were getting with this president and then what they've gotten from uh, not just this president, but also a Republican controlled government. And Kyle Conduct, you answered part of this by saying the checks and balance that Democrats will be running on. But take us inside the Democratic strategy rooms and what they're discussing, what we'll hear from these Senate Democratic candidates. Uh, it's interesting in that we've, we've sort of seen the Republican Party for several years be this kind of anti-establishment party and, and uh, these kind of outsider candidates winning these primaries. I mean, Trump, of course, is the, is the best example of that. He's someone that the party leadership did not like. And we're seeing a little bit of that on the Democratic side and that there's sort of a revolt against party leadership in the sense that you've got really a lot of Democratic House candidates across the country saying that they want new leadership for the party. They don't want to support Nancy Pelosi for speaker. And I think that's also a way for Democrats to sort of differentiate themselves from the national party and localize their own races in districts that may not be totally favorable uh, to uh, to Democratic candidates. And some of these Democratic candidates are really fresh faces. The, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee made, I think, a concerted effort to get uh, small business people, veterans, or ideally veterans who are small business people, uh, to be their candidates this year. And I think a lot of these candidates have very impressive resumes, but in, in many instances, they've never run for anything before. And it may be that uh, they're not perfectly vetted. And so there may be 
uh, things that Republicans can come after them for that doesn't have to do with a, don't have to do with a voting record, but do have to do with you know something that that may come in their background. So that's a, something to watch in the in the as the the election closes here. I don't think that national Democrats are emphasizing that Trump should be impeached or something like that. That I, I think they're they're wary of that being sort of an overreach. I think there's also a thought amongst Democrats that. You don't necessarily have to talk about the president that much because most people have their mind made up anyway. Democrats are extremely angry about the president. They're angry that he won. They're angry at his both policy agenda and also the way that he has behaved uh, in office. And so I think Democrats are sort of looking at it and saying, well, those those folks are going to come out and vote for us anyway. We have energy on our side. Now, how do we sort of triangulate these candidates, some of whom are running in districts that the president won, uh, to, you know, to reach that part of the electorate that maybe voted for Trump, but is sort of skeptical of him, but also doesn't want to necessarily vote for um, a Nancy Pelosi clone to the House. And, and so there's some there's some localizing going on uh, on the Democratic side as well, both in the House and then and we talked about in, in the Senate. Uh, with uh, with a lot of these uh, red state Democratic candidates finding out ways in which they can maybe agree with the president or disagree with the national party. You keep track of all of these races for Larry Sabato, his crystal ball, part of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. Before we talk about individual races, your website, which really is a terrific resource in trying to figure out what's happening state by state, not only in terms of polling, but also the issues you just talked about. Yeah. So uh, in addition to the Center for Politics ratings, which is available at Center, for, which are available at centerforpolitics.org backslash crystal ball, we also are working on an, another project uh, with the polling firm Ipsos. It's a big international polling firm. They do uh, online surveys that you, you may f- be familiar with them from. Uh, they do a uh, national polling with the, with the Reuters uh, news agency. Agency, uh, but Ipsos and the Center for Politics are uh, collaborating on this website called political-atlas.com, a political atlas. And uh, what the political atlas does is it shows our crystal ball ratings that are trying to handicap all the Senate, House, and gubernatorial races. It also features um, a model based on Ipsos's polling. Uh, that uh, you know, sort of con- also provides ratings, and there are some differences between our ratings and their poll ratings. Then they're also tracking social media sentiment across the country, which is sort of a um, kind of a new frontier in in kind of election forecasting. Is to look at um, intensity on social media, which sometimes can be a suggestion of again intensity on the ground. Um, the social media ratings are a lot different than you know our expert ratings, and also the polling based. Ratings, but I think they're, you know, I think they're generally more favorable to Democrats, uh, and I think it's picking up on some of the enthusiasm that Democrats have on the ground right now. Whether that translates to the election, sort of hard to say. I, I'm, I'm, we're, we're sort of at a starting point in terms of using social media metrics to try to figure out what might happen in an election. But the data is out there if you're interested in looking at it. You know, political-atlas.com, uh, and and the idea behind it is that. With election forecasting, uh, you want to look at as many sources of data as possible. And so we have three distinct uh, methods of looking at it, social media intensity, um, the polling model, and then also our expert uh, ratings. And so it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a cool site. It's a well-designed site that uh, I'm, I'm not a web person myself. Ipsos did a great job putting it together. Uh, and, uh, and easy so to it's, navigate. It's even easy to navigate. Uh, and just if you want to, you know, just see who's running and uh, what the races are and what the sort of the outlook is based on different kind of metrics, uh, it, it, it's a pretty cool site to look at. 
So let's turn to some of the races that will determine which party controls the Senate next year. And let's start with Indiana. This is a state where the president won. Vice President Mike Pence is helping Mike Braun, the Republican candidate, Joe Donnelly, the Democrat, running for a second term. Here are some of the ads now on the air in Indiana. Senators get paid almost three times more than a typical Hoosier family. But that wasn't enough for Joe Donnelly. Donnelly took more. His family got caught outsourcing jobs to Mexico, and Mexico Joe profited up to $80,000. And a past safety inspection of his family's business found serious violations. Outsourcing jobs to Mexico, American jobs at risk. Joe Donnelly profits. Senate Leadership Fund is responsible for the content of this advertising. I'm Joe Donnelly, and I approve this message. This is Mike Braun's global network of foreign auto parts suppliers. He uses foreign workers in Mexico, Taiwan, all across China. In a debate, Braun tried to hide it. I don't know where they get it made. We distribute them. Come on, Mike, this is your company website. Click here. It's even in Chinese. You list more than 200 foreign suppliers. I don't know where they get it made. China, Mike, and you're not fooling anyone in Indiana. Kyle Conduct, first, do negative ads work? Uh, yeah, and, and um, they're often uh, more effective uh, than positive ads. And I think people rightly complain about the tone of our politics. But unfortunately, you know, campaigns have to go with what they think works. And I think often uh, negative ads do work. I think sometimes when the environment is so, so negative, sometimes you could sort of cut through the clutter with a positive ad. In fact, as I recall, I think that the Trump campaign actually did some of that in 2016, um, in some of their advertising. It was actually hitting on some of these same kind of uh, economic nationalism themes that both the Braun and Donnelly ads um, hit on. And so sometimes a positive ad can be a breath of fresh air, but that's only because the other ads are so negative and campaigns generally believe, I think rightly, that the negative ads or, or um, to use the euphemism, contrast ads, uh, they, they do in fact work. Why is Indiana a bellwether for this year? Uh, so Indiana is one of the several uh, kind of dark red states that voted for the president by almost 20 points uh, that, uh, that that have a, a Democratic Senate incumbent, uh, in, in this case, uh, uh, Joe Donnelly, who won his first term in 2012 against uh, the very weak candidacy of Richard Murdoch. Uh, you, you may re remember that uh, Murdoch beat uh, Richard Dick, Dick Luger in a primary in 2012. Murdoch turned out to be kind of a dud of a candidate. He made this uh, widely mocked comment uh, about, uh, about abortion, I believe, during a debate that uh, helped to sink his campaign. Uh, and look, if the Democrats have any chance of winning the Senate majority, and it's it's a very difficult path for them, they basically have to hold everything they have, all 26 seats, and then find two more Republican-held seats, most likely Nevada and Arizona. Uh, but they don't really have a path if, if they lose in Indiana. And Indiana is an interesting state in that it's typically um, one of, if not the most Republican states in the Midwest at the kind of federal presidential level. And yet it also has a long history of pretty robust two-party competition, you know, below the presidential top line. And so if you go and look at, um, you know, Senate and House elections, uh, you, you know, Democrats have, have won Senate races in this state uh, in, in recent past, obviously Joe Donnelly. But um, you could go back to the Bai family as being a successful um, uh, Senate uh, father and son combination in that state. Uh, and also Democrats have, have competed pr really quite well for House, House districts in that state over the years. And so, you know, 
I think if Donnelly can't win, it leads one to question whether that competitive tradition is sort of over with. Uh, but Donnelly seems to be holding his own. My understanding of uh, internal campaign polling is that Donnelly is basically either tied or slightly leading. Uh, and then uh, Indiana is a state that doesn't get polled all that much. Uh, but NBC News Marist came out with a poll that showed Donnelly up uh, three to six points, depending on um, whether it was a, it was a, a head, head-to-head matchup or if you included third-party candidates. And so Donnelly does seem to be holding his own. It is interesting in terms of the messages of those uh, ads that, that we played a little bit ago is that both Mike Braun, the Republican candidate, and Joe Donnelly, the Democratic candidate, are kind of trying to outwit each other on the question of outsourcing. And again, the, the sort of economic nationalist themes that they sound are very similar to the sort of sort of messages that not only Donald Trump used in the 2016 election, but also I think that kind of um, left-wing anti-trade Democrats have used across the Midwest for, for many years, and, and then Trump kind of took those messages and, and weaponized them against Democrats in 2016. As you know, if the Democrats have to win Indiana, the Republicans have to maintain their seats, including Tennessee. This is an open seat. Senator Bob Corker is retiring. Representative Marsha Blackburn being challenged by former Governor Phil Bredesen. Here are some of the ads on the air in Tennessee. Backpage.com operated in over 97 countries, billions of dollars, trafficking human beings, even our children. It's sick, it's immoral, and it's why I fought to shut them down. Human trafficking is a tragedy that must be stopped. I'm Marsha Blackburn. I approve this message because I'll always fight those who prey on our most vulnerable. Marsha Blackburn for Tennessee. Phil Bradison and I approve this message. I've said before, if President Trump proposes something good for Tennessee, I'll be with him. That's why I'm fine with his outreach to North Korea. You gotta try. But if he proposes something that hurts Tennessee, I'll oppose it. And these new tariffs will hurt us. They hurt our auto industry, our farmers, even Tennessee exports like Jack Daniels. In the Senate, I'm going to do what's right for Tennessee. The Tennessee Senate race. And let's go back to Marsha Blackburn because there had been stories that uh, some Republicans were hoping that Senator Corker would change his mind, seek a third term. There had been speculation that he would do so. Obviously, this is an open seat. Is she the right candidate for this year? Uh, Blackburn is interesting in that she is probably kind of a more kind of hard right conservative candidate than we're sort of used to from Tennessee senators. You know, Tennessee has been electing Republicans to the Senate consistently for a few decades now, but their profiles are maybe a little bit, not necessarily moderate, but kind of more, a little bit closer to the center. Uh, 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 senators like Bob Corker, who you mentioned, who is retiring from this seat this year. Uh, Lamar Alexander is that kind of senator who sometimes uh, goes across the aisle. Howard go, Baker. I would go back to Howard Baker. Yeah. And so there's kind of this Again, I don't know if it's a moderate Republican tradition, but it's it's a uh, more centrist uh, Republican tradition. And, and I think there are some who feel like Blackburn is, again, a little too hard right, even for a state like Tennessee that has trended um, very strongly Republican in uh, in recent years. And, you know, Bredesen is a good kind of candidate for the Democrats to kind of occupy the middle and the, and the, the, the middle of the electorate if, in fact, that it, that part of the electorate is gettable because he is a very popular former governor. Uh, he is not a uh, kind of a super liberal uh, candidate. You know, I think he's kind of ideologically a good fit 
Um, he won re-election in 2006 in, in a landslide, uh, again, in a, in a, uh, in a, in a state that, that's, that uh, was and is Republican, although I think probably is more Republican uh, now. And, you know, the message that Blackburn was sending uh, in her ad, I think, was a way to sort of humanize herself and not attach herself to a controversial issue, but instead to uh, focus on her efforts to fight human trafficking, which is, you know, not someone that not not something that that you know many any voters are really going to be uh, supportive of, and so it's it's a uh, it's it's a positive ad. You know, we we're talking about how many negative ads there are, but here we're getting we're getting two positive ads. And Bredesen also is emphasizing that he wants to reach across the aisle. He's willing to support the president at times. You know, if you were running for Senate in Massachusetts, you'd never say you were going to support the president on anything. But it just goes to show that you you know if you're a Democrat running in a red state like this, you can't run as an 100 percent. Trump basher, although even though the president did really well in Tennessee, all over the country in red states and blue states, there are people who voted for him who, who for him who don't necessarily like him 100 percent of the time. And those are the people that I think Bredesen is going after, even in a sta- state that's so red like Tennessee. Let's turn to one additional state, North Dakota, ads now on the air in that race. This is Denise. She lives in Kildare. Like 300,000 North Dakotans, Denise has a pre-existing condition that used to mean no health insurance. For me, it's breast cancer. For Denise, it's heart disease. She has something she'd like to say to Kevin Kramer. Mr. Kramer, I don't know why you voted to let insurance companies go back to denying coverage for pre-existing conditions. But I know Heidi would never do that. I'm Heidi Heitkamp, and I approve this message for Denise. My mom still lives here in Kindred, where I grew up. So don't let anyone tell you that all cut Medicare and Social Security. It's not true. Seniors like my mom earned it and depend on it. We do. And I'm working to make sure that future generations have Medicare and Social Security in their retirement years. That's a big part of my job. Okay, kids, help me now. I'm Kevin Kramer, candidate for Senate, and I approve of this message. Me too! Some of the ads on the air in North Dakota, and again, going back to your earlier point, healthcare a big issue in this election. Uh, and also, here's here's one where you have two kind of positive ads, although the, the Heidkamp ad is sort of more of an attack, and then the the Kramer ad is sort of playing defense. Uh, in that, you know, North Dakota is a really Republican state, and yet. Uh, coverage for pre-existing conditions uh, it, that's you know mandated by federal law is popular all over the country, and so Heidkamp is trying to uh, attach herself to that. And uh, you know, no one wants to be accused of cutting Social Security and Medicare. Uh, Democrats and Republicans, more recently, have been using that as an attack against uh, you know against against the other side. And it just goes to show that even in a in a red state like North Dakota, you still have these two um, kind of defenses of big big ticket like kind of liberal programming whether it's social security and medicare or uh, you know pre-existing condition coverage that comes that kind of comes from the affordable care act which um, you know is is um, i'm sure if you use the term obamacare in a state like north dakota it's probably not that popular but certain aspects of it are and that's what Heidkamp is trying to uh, to focus on and to use as a weapon against uh, kevin kramer um, this this particular senate race is i think a lot of republicans see it as their best pickup opportunity um, my sense is that Heidkamp is trailing in the polls, at least the internal stuff. There's not a lot of public polling uh, in North Dakota right now. Uh, North Dakota is a state that the president won by about 35 points. Uh, Trump really wanted Kevin Kramer, the statewide at large uh, House member, to run in this state. Uh, and so, you know, the, the race for the Senate may actually be decided in some ways in North Dakota because 
if the Democrats can't hold it, it's hard to figure out exactly how they make the math work to net the two seats they need to win the Senate majority. Um, but, you know, if Republicans can't win North Dakota, they might not be able to beat any of the other Democratic Senate incumbents, which then would put the Senate majority uh, in play. So, you know, tiny state, uh, but 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 extremely uh, Im- important in the race for the Senate. And what's interesting is we focus on these so-called red states, fill in the state, when I agree with Donald Trump, when he does things good for the state, I'll work with him. And when I disagree, I'll let you know. That's right. And, and again, it, it gets back to this idea that even, you know, I think it's, it's become common to look at the president and think and say, oh, basically everyone who supports him loves him. And that's not that's not really true. I mean, his approval rating is, uh, you know, usually in the low 40s, which is which is a little bit lower than his share of the popular vote, which was about 46 percent. Uh, and if you ask people, if you dig down into these approval polls and you ask people, do you strongly approve of the president or strongly disapprove? Usually the number of people who the percentage of people who strongly disapprove is a lot higher than those who strongly approve. And so there is a hardcore base for the president. But there's also kind of a squishy um, part of the electorate that maybe approves of the president on some things, but maybe doesn't agree with him on everything. Uh, and those are the voters, again, who are going to determine um, who wins control of the Senate. You know, it's, it's voters who, who, who back Trump, um, but may be willing to listen to an argument from their a Democratic candidate, particularly an incumbent Democrat uh, who has a kind of built in statewide identity, somebody like Heidi Heidkamp or Joe Donnelly. Um, or John Tester in Montana, uh, Joe Manchin in West Virginia, et cetera. Let me conclude with a prediction question, pointing out that we're still two months before the November elections and so much can and will happen. But as it stands right now, what are you looking at? I think I would rather be the Republicans than the Democrats in the race for the Senate majority. Uh, the reason is mostly the map, not just that the Democrats are defending an extremely high percentage of the seats at play this year, again, 26 of the 35, uh, but also that the Democrats are defending all these dark red state um, senators. And in order to believe that the Democrats have a good chance to win the Senate, you have to believe that every Democratic senator will get reelected. And even in a good year, um, for Democrats, that may be too heavy of a lift, given how difficult some of these states are. That said, there is a path for the Democrats, and that is most simply is to win all the states they currently hold and then to win uh, two of the nine Republican seats being contested. Um, their best two opportunities are uh, Nevada, where Dean Heller's running for reelection. That's a classic swing state. Hillary Clinton actually carried that that state. And then Arizona, which is an open seat. Uh, and then there's also Tennessee, which we mentioned is a Democratic target. Uh, and so is Texas, uh, where Ted Cruz is running for re-election against uh, uh, House Representative uh, Beto O'Rourke. That's become a very high-profile race, even though Texas continues to be a state that I think is pretty hard at the statewide level um, for, for Democrats. And so, again, Democrats have a path to the majority. We shouldn't be you know, shocked if they win it. Uh, but, again, I think I'd rather be the Republicans in the race for the Senate even in a bad environment, just because of the roster of seats that are being contested. Kyle Conduct is the managing editor of Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball, part of the Center for Politics on the campus of the University of Virginia. We appreciate you stopping by our C-SPAN studios. Thanks for having me. And a reminder, the weekly is available online anytime at cspan.org. Be sure to sign up for our free C-SPAN radio app. We thank you for listening.